This morning we find ourselves at the end of the 11th chapter of Mark, where some Jewish leaders asked Jesus by what authority he had cleansed the temple. And in response to their question, Jesus asked his own question of these leaders. And then he told them a story about some wicked tenants. We begin today with Mark 11, 27 through 33. They, they, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus says, Neither will I tell you by what authority. I'm doing these things. Let's, let's just pause for a moment of prayer. Dear Father, I thank you so very much for this chance to share your word and your son's story. And God, open our hearts and minds that we might receive it today. And again, help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. One life principle that my parents taught me was to have respect for those in authority. My father was an army man, and he expected us to respect all those who were in authority over us. In the home, that meant respecting our parents. In the school, that meant respecting our teachers. Out on the street, that meant respecting the police and other governmental officials. In the church, that meant respecting God and His Word. Now, I have to admit that I didn't do all of that perfectly as a child. I mean, there were times when I disrespected my parents and didn't do what they wanted me to do. And I can tell you I paid a price for it. We probably all did that. There's just something in our nature, our sinful nature, that struggles with submitting to another's authority. And that includes sometimes even God's authority. When I was growing up, there, there, they were constructing subdivisions around our home. And so as they dug out the basements of the new home, there would always be these huge piles of dirt. That, that meant that we could play king of the mountain. And you would do anything to be king of the mountain. You would run up and push them off the top. You would fight them. You would kick them. You would throw clots of dirt at them. I mean, we were kind of mean to each other, and we each wanted to be king of the mountain. And let's face it, we still like being king of the mountain. We, we like being king of our own lives. And that was the very attitude that prompted the Jewish leaders to challenge Jesus in this morning's story. These religious leaders thought that they were the kings of the temple. They thought that they had the authority to decide what happens and what doesn't happen at the temple. 
And here Jesus comes into the temple area, and he single-handedly destroys the marketplace that these leaders had set up in the outer court of the Gentiles. The Jewish leaders, boy, they were angry about what Jesus had done. And so they began planning how they might discredit him and eventually kill him. And so as soon as Jesus arrives back at the temple the next day, they are ready to confront him with their questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this? These leaders asked these questions as a trap. If Jesus claimed that his authority came from God himself, they could accuse him of blasphemy, which was punishable by death. And if Jesus said that his authority was his own, they could kind of dismiss him before the crowd just as some crazy fanatic. But Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. Instead, he told the religious leaders that if they would first answer his one question, then he would answer their question about his authority. And Jesus' one question was a trick question, like theirs. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, what about it? I mean, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? These religious leaders reason that if they said that John's baptism came from God, that then Jesus would ask them why they didn't believe John. And if they suggested that his baptism was merely human, they were afraid of what the crowd might do. Because everyone seemed to believe that John was really a prophet from God. And so the leaders finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. The underlying issue in this exchange was the question of authority. Who had the authority? Who had the authority to be king of the mountain, to be king of the temple? The religious leaders again thought that they were the kings of the temple. They were the ones in control. And they certainly were not going to simply submit themselves to Jesus' authority. In spite of the fact that it was obvious to most people that God had worked in the life of John the Baptist and God had also worked in the life of Jesus. Now we too may also struggle with this same issue of submitting to Jesus' authority. I mean, we like being the king of the mountain. We like being king of our lives. We like being in control. In spite of the fact that Jesus has shown himself to be the Son of God. Though Jesus has shown himself to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why Jesus told the story of these wicked tenets to confront these religious leaders and us about our struggle to submit to God's authority in our lives. Let let me read the story for you, Mark 12, 1 through 9. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for a wine press, 
and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them, that they, they beat others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In this story, Jesus was basically telling Israel's story. And he was telling God's part in Israel's story. And so I've divided the story into four parts. The first part of the story, God lovingly provided for Israel. Jesus begins the story with a man planting a vineyard. He built a wall around to protect it. He dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and he built a lookout tower. After it was all built, he rented the vineyard to some tenant farmers and goes on a journey entrusting them to grow the crop. I mean, that's exactly what we do with Christie's parents' ground. I mean, we rent it out to Rod Utsi, and we entrust to Rod... We entrust him to plant and to care for and to harvest a crop. As a matter of fact, we have a 50-50 agreement. We pay 50% of the farming expenses and we receive 50% of the crop. The vineyard owner in the story had a similar agreement. He had provided the vineyard and he expected some of the harvest. The man in the story represented God, who lovingly provided for his people. The vineyard represented the nation of Israel, which again was to bear fruit for God. And the tenant farmers represented Israel's religious leaders, who were to help plant, care for, and harvest a spiritual crop from among the Jews. God has been a good, good father to Israel. He had freed them from Egyptian bondage. He had provided for them in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He gave them a rich and fertile promised land. And because of all that he had provided Israel, he expected them. He expected them to honor him and produce a spiritual harvest for him. That's part one. The second part of Israel's story, God patiently dealt with Israel. The time of the grape harvest had come. 
And so the vineyard owner sent one of his servants to collect his share of the harvest. But those itinerant farmers grabbed him, beat him, and sent him empty-handed. <laughs> the owner sent another servant. They insult him and beat him over the head, and he sent another servant. They kill him. <laughs> The owner kept sending servants, and the itinerant farmers would either beat them or kill them. These servants represented the prophets that God had sent to Israel over the centuries. He had sent them to encourage the people and its leaders to honor God and to produce a spiritual harvest. But for the most part, the Israelites and their leaders rejected these prophets and their message. They mistreated them, they tortured them, and they killed some of them. Now I can't imagine Rod cheating Christie's mom out of her portion of the crop. I mean, she's providing the ground... She's helping him with the farm expenses, and so she deserves her portion of the harvest, just as God deserved his portion of the harvest from Israel and its leaders. But that didn't happen. They had little respect for God, his message, or his messengers. And yet he kept patiently dealing with Israel and its religious leaders for centuries. That's part two. The third part of Israel's story, God graciously sent his son to Israel. The vineyard owner ended up sending all of his servants. All he had left to send was his son, who the scripture says he loved dearly. And he thought that if he would send his son, these tenant farmers would would surely respect him and give him what they deserved. But these farmers thought differently. They thought if they killed the son, they could somehow inherit his estate and the vineyard could be theirs. And so they grabbed the son, murdered him, and threw his body out of the vineyard. This part of the story would have hit home, especially with the religious leaders who were at that moment making plans to kill Jesus. God had sent his son to Israel, and they had rejected him and were about to kill him. There is one verse in the scriptures that says he came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Here God had provided abundantly for Israel. He patiently gave them chance after chance after chance to honor him and his message. Now he graciously sent his son to them, and they reject him and murder him. Jesus was God's final messenger. Jesus was God's final messenger to Israel. There would be no others. Either they would accept God's Son and His message, or they would reject Him and face certain judgment. Either they would honor Him and His authority, or they would foolishly think that they were king of the mountain. And sadly, most of Israel made the wrong choice. God graciously sent His Son to Israel, 
And most of the Israelites and their leaders rejected him. That's the third part of their story. And then the fourth part is God rightly judged Israel. I mean, this is the sad part of Israel's story. Look again how Jesus concluded today's story. Mark 12, verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The tenant farmers mistakenly thought that if they could kill the owner's son, they could inherit somehow the son's inheritance of the vineyard. But that doesn't happen. They hadn't appreciated all the vineyard owner had provided for them. They hadn't honored him or his servants And they had rejected and killed his son. And so for all of this, these wicked tenants would be killed and the vineyard would be given to others. Luke told us in his gospel how the people reacted when they heard this part of the story. Luke 20, verse 16. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be... I mean, the people obviously understood the meaning behind the story. God was going to bring judgment on those who rejected his son. And if Israel rejected his son, they would be judged, and rightly so. And in reality, that's what happened to most of Israel. Because they rejected Jesus, they rejected his message, and they rejected his authority in their lives. It is a sad ending to Israel's story. God rightly judged them. But thankfully, Jesus' teaching that day doesn't end there. After mentioning that the vineyard would be given to others, he said this in in Mark 16, verses 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting a passage from the 118th Psalm, applying it to Jesus and these religious leaders, the stone that these leaders had rejected, that's Jesus, will become the capstone, the the cornerstone of something new. The cornerstone for the church. I mean, that's exactly how the Apostle Paul described Jesus in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. It says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He is the cornerstone of this congregation And God, the the vineyard owner, has given the vineyard his vineyard to us. 
Now it is our responsibility to produce a spiritual harvest for God. As a result, Israel's story has become our story. Let me, let me quickly look at our story and God's part in our story. Again, there are four parts, and I'm going to do this quickly. Part number one, God lovingly provides for us. There's one verse that says it better than any other, James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. You think that God blessed Israel abundantly? I mean, God has blessed us more abundantly. Every physical and spiritual blessing that we enjoy, God has lovingly provided for us. Part two, God patiently deals with us. Look at 1 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient with us as he was patient with Israel. He patiently gives us time to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he patiently gives us time. He patiently gives us time to make Jesus Lord of our lives, to make him king of our mountain. Part number three, God graciously gave his son for us. We are familiar with Jesus' words in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. As God graciously sent His Son to Israel, He has graciously given His Son for us and our salvation. Jesus died for the world that everyone who might believe in Jesus can have eternal life. And then part number four. God undeservedly offers us a choice in Jesus. Israel had a choice to make. Would they accept or reject Jesus? Would they or would they not submit to him and his authority? That is the same undeserving offer that Jesus makes to us. Will we accept or reject Jesus? Will we or will we not submit to him? And his authority. The Apostle John said it so simply in 1 John 5 12. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you have Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, you have life and life eternal. If you don't have Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, you don't have life. That means each of us have a decision to make. And we don't want to make the same wrong decision that the Jewish religious leaders made and reject Jesus. The last verse in this morning's text is Mark 12, verse 12. 
Then they looked for a way to rest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. These leaders chose to be king of the mountain. They chose to be king of the temple. They chose not to submit to Jesus and his authority. It is a sad ending. Now, what about us? Let me share some practical applications as we close this morning. Four things that I think we need to do as a result of this morning's message. Number one, reflect on all that God has lovingly provided for you, both physical and spiritual. We just had Thanksgiving. (laughs) And think about the blessings that God has given us. And God has given me, let me tell you, a lot of blessings. He has been good to me. And he's been good to you. Number two, realize how patient God has been with you, giving you multiple opportunities to get right with him. Multiple opportunities to come and accept him as Savior, and multiple opportunities to more and more make him Lord of your life. Number three, recognize that God gave his son for you, your forgiveness, and your salvation. John 3.16, it applies to me, it applies to you, and applies to everybody in the world. God gave his son for us that we might know eternal life. And then last of all, repent and surrender your life to Jesus, submitting to his authority in your life. That's the challenge. In a world where we like to be king of the mountain, we need to make Jesus king of our lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you so very much for the challenge here. And God, I pray that we will learn a lesson from Israel and their failures. And God, that we'll correct those failures in our life, that we'll recognize you as king of our lives, that we'll submit to your authority, that we will seek salvation in you, that we'll make you Lord of our lives. We pray all that in the name, the powerful name of your son Jesus. Amen. As always, we thank you for sharing with us on Sunday mornings. If there's some way, again, that we can minister to you, a prayer request maybe that you've got, please contact us. Either call us on the church phone, 217-379-4443, or you can contact us uh, through our church uh, website, paxtonchurchofchrist.org. There's a contact page there, and we'll get an email message, and we'll respond. We pray God's blessing upon you in the week ahead, and we look forward to sharing with you next Sunday. Have a great week. God bless.